Welcome to the Saints FC podcast. It is episode 102. And um, once again, I'm joined by Tom Parker. Tom, how, how the devil are you? Are you well? Yeah, I'm, I'm really good, John. How are you doing tonight? I, I, I'm right. Um, like, it's quite surprisingly, I mean, we, we had a terrible night's sleep last night. Um, we have a, a youngish baby and he wasn't playing ball last night teething obviously the generic parental response to that but but bizarrely today I felt okay so I'm not sure what's going to happen if maybe I'm just going to slump in the middle of this podcast but I'm I'm running on some sort of energy which I didn't realize I had um Tom we're also joined by uh, an extra a third wheel this evening and uh, a guest that I'm quite excited to introduce you to we have Alex Stewart uh, from TIFO Alex welcome to the podcast thank you very much for having me um, Alex, we're well. I'm particularly excited about having you on the podcast. There, there's a number of reasons. I've been really enjoying your TIFO videos that you put out and the podcast. Um, you're also a Southampton fan, which is quite rare for like the football hipsterdom that that we try <laughs> to operate in. And um, uh, also, you asked me to be on the podcast, which I think is a first from, uh, we'll call you a football journalist or a football content creator or something like that. So, um, you know, we, I, I've had um, Mick Channon asked to be on the podcast, but you're our first kind of one from the, the, the football uh, media world. So lots of first there. And uh, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, for our listeners that perhaps aren't aware of TIFA, do you want to tell us what it is? Uh, yeah, so so um, first of all, thanks for having me, and I'm sorry that I'm not Mick Channon. Um, TIFO is a uh, video channel on YouTube. Um, we also produce podcasts, as you said, and we make illustrated videos largely, although we are moving more into, um, I guess, what we call live-action videos, which are largely me or Joe or Seb speaking to camera about stuff. Uh, and we try and explain football, so it's... Um, you know, the, the approach is very much that, that football fans are smart, considered people who want to learn more about the game and want to understand the the hinterland, whether that's social or cultural or economic, uh, tactical as well. Uh, and we try and explain that. So you're kind of um, the football connoisseurs man of, of information and intrigue. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the resident <laughs> tactics nerd. Um and uh, and and stat stuff as well. Um, so I suppose I, I do most of the tactical content. I do a series that we do called Sensible Transfers, where we look at um, recruitment for clubs based on on data and tactics rather than just kind of guessing or what sounds exciting. Um, so yeah, but it's a you know it's a broad range of, of videos. There's something for everyone. I, I'd like to think. Um, so yeah, 
I mean, check sen- it out. Sensible transfers almost sounds like the absolute antithesis of uh, Harry Redknapp. It's almost like you're so repulsed by him as Southampton manager that you've you've gone in the exact opposite direction there. That's very much the vibe. Yes. Yeah. Um, Who would be um, an example of an unsent? I mean, unsensible Southampton transfer. Uh, I mean, yeah. Um, there's there quite are, a there, few to choose there from. Are some, <laughs> shall we say? Um, I mean, Korea would be one example, maybe. Oh, yes. Florian Gardos would be another. Um, I, I don't know. It's it when we do sensible Os- Osvaldo, transfers, maybe. That was I mean, I quite liked Osvaldo actually when he came. He just didn't really do very much. Um, I, I, what what we try and do is look look mostly at how a player would fit into a side. Um, so Southampton, for example, would be would be quite an exciting challenge. Uh, is really quite distinct. Um, and you know, one of the easy ways would be to look at, at teams like Red Bull, Leipzig, or Salzburg that that play a very similar style. But we we gear our suggestions towards the tactics that the team employ, the areas that they're weakest, uh, and then try and find maybe a suggestion that's not immediately in the forefront of everybody's mind, certainly not people that are necessarily being linked with the club, that kind of stuff. So who would you say, have you been starting to sort of play around with this yet, Alex, for the January transfer window in Southampton? Um so we're not doing it for Southampton, although um, Dan Sheldon at The Athletic, um, who now own TIFO Football, um, will be doing a similar kind of piece. Um, and I would encourage people to to check Dan's work out because it's it's really first rate. Um, so there, there will be there'll be a written piece. But for the videos, um, to be honest, we we tend to keep it for the, the bigger clubs no offence to Southampton fans as one. Um, So we'll be looking at people like uh, Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, um, probably Spurs, Arsenal, that kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll start my research for that next week. Okay. Mm, Interesting stuff. Yeah. I I mean, I noticed on your YouTube channel that you have uh, a rather impressive 878,000 subscribers. Um, I was rather impressed with that. Being the purveyor of a Saints podcast, I can tell you that we don't have 878,000 subscribers. Um, Just a a few short of that. So, you know, that that generalist approach certainly makes uh, things more more popular. But, you know, to be honest, my interest in other football teams is just nowhere near that of Southampton. I I couldn't put it off. So, you know, uh, power to your elbow for for being able to do that. So, um, uh. I mean, in terms of listeners, my recommendations is that you search, uh, look out for the tactics explained. Um, there was a recent video that you guys did on Ralph Hassenhutl's tactics at Southampton. I think we tweeted that out a, a few weeks ago yeah. already. So do have a look at that. And then also, as well as the lovely kind of almost champion, old school championship manager images, you've got... Uh, some really great cartoons and sort of lift music is how I would describe it. But they make really pleasing videos. <laughs> like it's almost like an information video. And I mean, I, I've been really impressed because like the Saints FC podcast is very much a sort of homemade thing. My wife's a professional podcaster and I just nick her equipment and then do Southampton stuff with it. But your stuff looks really slick. Um, 
And I was expecting when I I found you on LinkedIn today, Alex, I was doing some snooping around on the internet and I was expecting to see, you know, media training and, um, you, you know, perhaps like graphic design and animation and stuff like that. But you, you're an ex-copper. That wasn't something I was expecting <laughs> to see on the, the LinkedIn oh. profile. So how, how did you end up in something so slick as, as Tifo? It's, it's, it's a slightly curious one, isn't it? Um, so before... Before I was a copper, I was, I was a PhD student, um, and I'd always enjoyed research and writing. Um, I ended up not finishing my PhD uh, and joining the police because I guess I was looking for something a bit more exciting, a bit more communal, something where I felt like I was doing something useful, you know. Um, and then after six years of that, and just getting increasingly frustrated with the Met as an organisation, and um, I guess finding like I, I couldn't do the job the way I wanted to. Uh, I'd I'd already been blogging about football, um, so I set up a blog kind of uh, within about a year of the blizzard starting up, um, and I'd I'd begun to get interested in in tactics and stuff. I mean, I'd always had an interest in football, but. Um, I missed writing about stuff, and football seemed like something I could I could get my teeth into um, without any pressure, I suppose. Uh, so when I left the police, I thought, well, I I'm going to try and be a freelance football writer. Uh, and I'd met Joe Devine, who's our executive producer, through a podcast that he used to do, um, and as well as doing other bits and pieces, I ended up writing for what used to be Tifo when it was called UMAX at um, writing pieces for the website. Then when Joe started making videos, it seemed like a natural fit to do tactics videos because obviously you can display tactical information uh, in in a, a visual form that makes it that much easier to understand. So it just kind of went from there, really. Um, because I knew Joe from before I ended up um, moving into kind of more of a content strategy role um, alongside him and becoming one of the three kind of partners in the company along with Neil who set us up um, and yeah just kind of you know tried to make it work as a business thought a lot about football tactics and then um, back in September of last year the Athletics started to work with us initially in terms of sponsorship and then ended up buying us in April of this year. Oh, nice. So now, now you're kind of like sat on loads of cash, no doubt, for selling <laughs> selling Tifo. Um, so, I mean, you, you're probably our, our second millionaire in a number of weeks, so we had Mick Channon on a, a couple of weeks ago. So I, I can I can categorically <laughs> state that, that that is not true. Um. Um, right, anyway, uh, so let's let's move on. So um, you're a Saints fan. Uh, we understand that's because you're from the area, so you're born and raised in Winchester. Is there any player that really caught your eye when you were growing up that, that really sealed the deal? I mean, perhaps apart from the really obvious one. <laughs> apart from the really obvious one. Um, so I, I started going regularly to Saints games in about 2002-03. So prior to that point, um, I, you know, school and so on. And, and I don't come from a football supporting family. My, my dad's massively into F1, as is my sister, uh, my mum and my brothers are uh, equestrian, so I'm kind of the only person in my family who likes football. Um, so I didn't do the whole kind of, you know, going with dad route um, that a lot of people do. Uh, so I started going when I was at university. I'd come down from university to watch games. 
Um, and I suppose it was that kind of lovely era, certainly maybe after a year or two, where you had people like Michael Svensson, Klaus Lundekwam, uh, Chris Marsden, who I loved, uh, Matt Oakley, Francis Benali, Jason Dodd. It was that kind of era. Um, so I have a lot of positive associations with those guys, Antti Niemi as well as a goalkeeper, which is the position I, I used to play, although not very well. Um, and then I, I guess when, you know, I lived in London for 10 years and it became increasingly hard to go to games. Um, but, you know, I, I always kind of continued to follow the team and obviously the ups and downs of, of that period. Um, but it's nice, you know, working in football journalism or content creation, or I, I wouldn't ever describe myself as a journalist, actually, because I don't really find anything out. Um, but it's Southampton is kind of my release from the rest of it, because I, I spend a lot of time looking at teams from a, a quite forensic perspective and dissecting tactics and, and so on. And that's, you know, I find it interesting because I like patterns and I like explaining stuff. Um, but I've, I've kind of almost got closer to Southampton because I needed a bit of my football experience to not be that. Um, so, uh, you know, I suppose really from the, the Pochettino era onwards, I've kind of come back into it, which is, you know, makes me sound like I, I decked out when we got relegated, which is not true. Um, it's just kind of how it's fallen with work and so on. Yeah, I mean, essentially, what you're saying is that Alan Pardew and George Burley weren't tactically enthralling enough for you to to deep dive into what they were doing. <laughs> I remember watching Paul Sturrock manager. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing tactical going on there. No, all right. Well, Alex, we're absolutely delighted to have have you on the podcast, and no doubt we're going to touch on a few um, of your sort of expert areas as we move uh, through the through the episode. Um, Obviously, the, the main thing I think our listeners are here to do is, is listen to us kind of pick over the bones of Saints versus Brighton, um, which we saw last night and Monday night, um, the first time Saints had won on a Monday night since Gordon Strachan was the manager. Um, so going back a, a fair few years then, um, although obviously Monday, Monday night football isn't that frequent, I think that was 14 games without a win. On a, on a Monday night, so that was good that we've got there. It was quite an, an ugly win, and I wasn't, you know, totally enthralled with Saints' performance, but they got the job done quite effectively in the end. And um, although there's a, sort of a few kind of talking points where you might suggest that we didn't really do anything particularly special, but um, as the game started off, I, th- I thought Brighton were best in the early parts of the first half and they had they had the first chance with Welbeck um getting through and that that was kind of a little bit worrying and then we had the run up to the penalty that we gave away and I suppose the, the sort of first question is what was James Will Prowse doing with his arm up in the air I mean I thought was he appealing for a handball from Welbeck and then it bounced and kind of twizzled around his hand and, and he ended up giving away the handball himself. I mean, Tom or Alex, I don't know if, if either of you are able to explain this any better than I am. Alex, do you want to have a go? I, I, I mean, that... <laughs> no. <laughs> In short, it, it did look... I mean, the hand, was, the hand was so elevated that it did look like an appeal. Um, but... It, it's very, I mean, it, it didn't look like a sort of, you know, attempting to balance kind of hand. It 
it was like he was raising it in class, wasn't it? It mm. was it was a bit odd. Um but what what was going through his mind I I don't wish to speculate. I mean no. did, was I mean did, was he trying it was a handball by Welbeck? I didn't see it. Well, I mean the ball kind of like hit his shoulder, didn't it? I mean but also it seemed that the hand was was up there before really the ball hit his hand. So I mean I don't know what he was appealing, but it's maybe an interesting lesson for um, in this era of the handball rule and VAR and all of that, that perhaps you shouldn't appeal for anything in the box until after the ball has, has gone way past you because he ended up looking very, very silly. Um, Pascal Grace, you know, did the business with the, um, with the penalty. Uh, he tried to sort of trick McCarthy into diving early. That didn't happen. Then McCarthy dived the wrong way anyway, but for a very minor split second I thought he might save that but then then jumped uh, the, the wrong way I felt like it was probably a deserved lead from Brighton I think without being particularly exceptional or incisive they were definitely better than Saints throughout the, f- the whole first half and I, I was trying to work out what was going wrong with Saints and I thought Gineppo wasn't having a particularly great uh, game and I didn't think Armstrong was really getting involved either but actually I, I think probably all over the pitch there were issues um, Alex, what was kind of going wrong here that has been going right in the previous games this season? Um, I think a, a large part of it was was the way that Brighton uh, sought to control the midfield area early on. Um, you know, Basuma uh, put in a lot of pressures um, and really hurried Saints along. And I, Southampton are pretty good at playing the ball under pressure, but you know he was he was a kind of constant thorn in the side the wing backs were were able to tuck in and help out a little bit and obviously if you're playing a you know a quite an elegant ball winning center back uh in your midfield double pivot as well that that adds to it so i think it was southampton struggled to get fluency uh under that degree of pressing um and i and i think you know the the 4222 shape is probably most exposed um, by a back three where you can get decent midfield superiority um, and it, it just made it difficult to play through um, and I agree in terms of the ebb and flow of the game certainly Brighton started better um, and and that seemed like a very deserved lead because they were starting to establish real dominance in the centre of the pitch Yeah, I, I didn't think it was a case of Saints playing really badly I, I thought Brighton just played really well mm. I thought they they pressed Saints, then they high up the pitch, and I think our our centre backs didn't really get the time on the ball they would like in the first half. And and I thought I thought Basuma was excellent. He looked like the sort of player you imagine can actually do, do a job for Saints in terms of both strong, exactly. and really tidy on the ball. Um, yeah. And I thought Romeo and Ward Prowse probably had one of their more anonymous first halves. You, you've seen them, so I you know I thought Brighton actually played really really well and you're kind of quite glad that you know between Connolly and Welbeck they're probably not the most efficient strikers in the Premier League Um, and also without Lalana, who I think probably would have given them just that extra little bit of composure and extra little bit of class to unpick Saints but um, to be fair to Brighton I thought they played really well first sort of 44 minutes that first half yeah I mean that's the benefit of a a 3-4-1-2 is that you can you can have your strikers going up against the two centre backs or running through onto the goalkeeper, which which Welbeck particularly did quite a lot. That attacking midfielder can then push up 
as well. Plus, if you've got, particularly on the right-hand side with Tariq Lamptey, who is so fast, he can really pin back the left-back. And, and all of a sudden, it makes it really easy with that particular formation to start to establish dominance in what would be their attacking third, our defensive third. And you've still got, you know, three on two at the back for Brighton. So there's a degree of solidity there. So I think they just they just tried to sort of strangle Southampton uh, in that first half. And and like you say, they we, we found it very difficult to play through that um, because of those numerical mismatches. I mean, it, it was very effective from um, from Graham Potter. And I think Graham Potter's a, a very good manager. I sort of had half an eye on him before we signed Ralph Hassenhutl as manager, thinking that he might ex-Southampton player. You know, doing, he was doing some interesting stuff in Sweden at, at the time. And I thought, you know, the, the play might work quite well for Southampton. And it is interesting with the Brighton side, which I don't think is necessarily littered with superstar football players with extreme talents but he's got them playing pretty pretty effectively and, and doing the job kind of pretty well I, I can't say that I've watched an awful lot of Brighton I've basically watched their games against Saints and nothing else so um, but one of the things I have noticed over recent weeks certainly Man United did it is, is they um, kind of set up to frustrate the way that Southampton play. And uh, with Wolves, we saw that as well, with them um, uh, changing their backline and changing their tactics completely um, to sort of mirror what Saints were doing and, and stop that. Were, were Brighton doing that as well, or is this Graham Potter's normal normal mode? Um, I mean, Brighton are relatively aggressive in the press, um, I would say this is probably, I, I haven't checked the numbers, but I, I would suspect that this was a bit more aggressive than usual. Um, I mean, I, I suppose what what you're looking for against Southampton is you don't want the game to become really fractured and chaotic because that's the situation in which we thrive, you know, when we can either make those surging penetrative runs down the flanks or get that really quick snappy vertical passing going up through the centre. Um and the the further up the pitch you cut that off, um, then the easier it is. And if you've got three at the back, even even when Theo Walcott's quick and and you know Che Adams isn't isn't slow either, but he's not quite Walcott's pace, you still have that blanket of security. Um, so I think you know I think we've what we saw with Brighton was a, a slightly different attempt rather than putting out that the block um because you know Southampton will recycle possession quite quite a lot um and, and take it really quite deep if if the initial thrust doesn't work and I think Wolves particularly tried to get that block and make themselves difficult to play through and get Southampton just going back and round and back and round whereas Brighton were much more uh, assertive in the way that they tried to to cut the playoff I think as, as well. You you mentioned Tarek Lamptey as well, but he's a he's a real player, isn't he? He he is just so fast and so direct. And um, the commentary I was watching last night described him as, as a train. You know, once he start, once he gets going, you just got to get out of his way because he's going to keep going. And I thought they brought him into the game really well. And we met. You know, you mentioned Gineppo, You know, didn't have a good game, but I think. Now, Gineppo is always going to struggle, isn't he, against a player like Traore or or a or a Lamptey, who is just an out and out attacker. Um, uh, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. Obviously, how they just you know it was almost like uh, Lamptey has 
he's not a right back and he's not a winger. He just kind of does whatever the hell he likes on the right side of the pitch and, and Brighton just get on with it. Well, he's, I mean, Lampt, he's played everywhere along that right-hand side of the pitch. I mean, Graham Potter, particularly last season, experimented a lot with formations. Um, and Lamptey appeared as, as an orthodox right-back, as a wing-back, right-midfielder, and even as a, a really quite advanced right-winger. Um, and I think the thing I like about him is that because he's so fast, he is able... He's obviously able to pin you know, the opposition wide players back and, and, you know, we didn't see Bertram getting forward as much. Certainly Gineppo, I think, had a pretty torrid time. But he also has the pace to make intelligent recovery runs so that if a player gets past him or even if a player is cutting across from the other side of the pitch, Lamptey will will be back in his penalty area before you have noticed that he's even set off. You know, he's he's an extraordinary athlete, but he also has the intelligence to get himself in the right place. Um, and yeah, he's, I mean, he's one of the finds of the season so far really is. I mean, he kind of came through a bit last season, but he certainly wasn't making waves in the same way that he has done so far. Right. Well, I'm going to move on from Tarek Lamptey now because this ain't the Brighton podcast. So we're going to have to try and find something positive to talk about with Saints. I, I suppose kind of one of the um, advantages of Brighton is that, for Saints' perspective, is they weren't creating loads of sort of clear-cut chances um, from open play. It took them a penalty to get a goal. And I suppose it's unsurprising, considering the first half that we had, that it took a, a set play for us to get our goal. Um, finally, we sort of get a good set-piece opportunity. Uh, James Ward-Prowse, uh, once again, with a fantastic corner. And who wants to wax lyrical about Yannick Vestergaard's header here? Because it was an absolute thing of beauty. He's great, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got you've got an advantage at six foot five, um, but I sometimes think that can almost count against a player uh, when they're attacking a a ball in that way because there's almost an assumption that you're going to win it, um, and so you know you just sort of rise up and, and hope for the best. But the way that he guided it, and he he's shown this with um, I think it's three headers now he scored this season. You know he has an ability not simply to to generate the height uh, and the power, but also to have really really good placement. Um, I I mean I think I think Vestergaard will probably talk about this in the second half, but um, the way he the way he played generally I think was was kind of part of the key to to coming back properly into the game. Um, but that the header was just sumptuous. It, it was absolutely sumptuous. And um, you're right, Alex, I have a how good is Yannick Vestergaard section um, prepped for once we get through uh, the main talking points in the game. So we'll, we'll save that uh, for that, although I'm sure we'll be speaking about him again. Um, that takes us into half time 1-1. I think we're all pretty relieved to be 1-1 at half time. I certainly wasn't expecting it. Um, and then at halftime, we saw the sight that um, makes all Saints fans swoon. And it was Danny Ings on the side of the pitch getting ready uh, to come back on after a, a pretty short spell on the sidelines considering the injury. And, um, you know, it just shows how determined he is to come back. Hopefully he's not doing it too soon. Um, but I, I doubt he would risk himself. I think he would be fairly confident with that. And... I thought the impact of having Danny Ings on the pitch was immediate. We looked better. 
um, in the second half. I mean, Brighton looked pretty good as well in places, but I thought we were pressing with more purpose. Um, I think Dannings made some you know, an important couple of um, uh, defensive contributions as well during the second half, and it, it just it made me feel happy to see Danny Ings back in the side. <laughs> I mean, Tom, Alex, Tom, you, you tell me how, how happy were you to see Danny Ings there? Well, it's the, it's, it's not just him, isn't it? He lifts everyone around him. Yeah. He, he clearly, you know, and also if you imagine if you're, 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 you're Brighton and you're there and you're doing all right and you're thinking, well, you know, Shea Adams is good, but he misfires a lot. Walcott's not what he was. And all of a sudden, you know, that's, that's, it's a bit like what Man United did to us, isn't it? Where they bought on Cavani. And the ability to be able to bring on a player of the quality of Danny Ings just gives everyone a lift. And and not only is he a better probably forward than 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 Walcott, but Walcott's also a better left winger than Gineppo. So all of a sudden Saints are two players better almost than than they were. And I think yeah, his his link up play, the way he, he leads the press from the front. And just the general kind of his, his I think he just causes kind of chaos, doesn't he? Because obviously he's now developed from a player who kind of you know hadn't scored. I think before Burnley last year at St Mary's, he hadn't scored from outside the penalty area once in the Premier League, apparently. And now you know outside the penalty area is kind of his thing. Um, he, yeah, even winning goal of the month from match of the day, wasn't he? With that outside of the yeah. box strike against Aston Villa. Um, Alex, I'm, I'm willing to let you have a go at talking about how much you love Danny Ings at this point as well. Let's keep this section of the podcast going. You can't not love Danny Ings. Um, I mean, I think I, I agree. I think it's a very astute point, Tom, in terms of of Walcott. Also, I mean, Walcott, I think, has done really well um, stepping in in that role and, and has shown what a smart and hardworking footballer he is to come into a complex system. And pick it up really well, and that speaks volumes for his professionalism as much as anything else. But Danny Ings is the guy who's getting a goal or an assist per game, um, and that is an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult thing to to replicate. I think actually the um, the point you made about when Manchester United brought Cavani on as well that, that there is an analogy there because the other thing that Cavani did so well in that game was lead Manchester United's press, um, and Ings. Ings presses in a different way to Che Adams. So Che Adams is very much pressing forwards. He's looking to uh, unsettle the centre-backs, push the ball out into the full-back area and, and try and get them to play that long pass. Whereas Ings can do that. But he's also an absolute nightmare for midfielders because he's constantly dropping off and he's pressing midfielders from effectively behind if they're facing towards our goal. And the number of times that, you know, particularly Armstrong and Ings will kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They'll coalesce around a player and, and rob the ball off them in, in concert and then drive forwards. Um, and Walcott, for all his ability, isn't as good at doing that because I think there are very, very few strikers in the Premier League who are. Uh, and he just adds that extra bit of difficulty for teams trying to play out from the back. Um, because you've broken the first line of the press, you actually haven't, because Danny Ings is the first and second line of the press. I mean, that, that's a really good way to, to describe it. And I think you know, when you talk about Lamptey earlier being kind of back, it, it so often happens with Danny Ings as well. You know, 
we've lost the ball up, up front and then you know a passage of play happens the camera pans back and it's Danny Ings kind of stopping the attack or heading out from the box or and it's it's really impressive to to see we don't just miss him up front when he's gone we miss him in midfield and we miss him in defense as, as well and i bet you if you gave him a pair of gloves you know he'd, he'd do a job in goal <laughs> as well he's he's that good at, at the moment um walcott um I agree. You know, he's done really well to step into Ings's shoes. I don't think he was ever going to be able to do everything that Ings does, but it was good to have him back on on the left hand side as a winger. I think he's more effective there. Um, we did see Walcott um, put a fairly decent shot in just wide of, of the post, um, and that was very much a sort of like jumping up and ooing moment for me in front of the telly. Um, Walcott, he's, he's done really well but he is frustrating me a tiny bit with the amount of shots he seems to be putting off target I'd love to see him test the keeper with that and then I think it was against Wolves where he had a you know brilliant chance which he really needs to get on target is that that's kind of something that's happened all the way through his career isn't it that occasionally he gets in really good positions and just puts it wide or, or just off it does almost everything right apart from the the finishing bit yeah, the, the the question around Walcott, and and this is why you know he throughout his career he's he's often said that he's a striker, um, but he is joint second um, for shots taken by volume for Southampton uh, with fifteen, um, joint with Danny Ings. Chad Adams has had twenty, uh, and he's only put four of his shots on target, which is not great. Um, and and for someone with quite a high shot volume as well, that that does that's the frustration thing. If 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 you're taking not many shots, it's less of an issue if a proportion of them are off target. But he's actually taking more shots per ninety than any of our other players. So there is a, a sense that occasionally maybe he spurns an opportunity. Um, but I think you know his value, and this is one of the reasons why, as, as a left winger, he's good. Is that he's he's a very assiduous presser. He's still very quick, uh, and he adds that ability to arrive late, uh, coming in a, a kind of an angled run. Which maybe that doesn't generate a shot, but what it does do is it, it draws the opposition right back forwards, or it gives the opposition centre back two players to worry about, or it pulls a, a midfielder back with him, and and that sort of movement is, I think, you know, he's a bit more dynamic on the left-hand side with that than Stuart Armstrong is on the right, although I'm a big fan of Stuart Armstrong. His talents are perhaps elsewhere. Um, and, and for that reason, I think, you know, Walcott is is as much use as a decoy runner as, as he is as somebody who actually, you know, has end product because that can be frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's one of those things with, with Walcott that, end product has been frustrating but I think we can all see that he's contributing a lot to the way Saints are playing uh, and what I think is also really quite quite interesting is I think from a transfer point of view it, it came a bit from left field it certainly doesn't fit the mold of a normal Ralph Hasenhüttl uh, transfer but then he's gone straight into the team done a job in a couple of different positions whereas I think Salisu was on the bench for the first time against Brighton but we've still not seen him play um and um Diallo's you know he's he's been sparingly used so it's interesting that he's been trusted in a way that the other players of you know Ralph isn't quite ready to to throw them in 
in, in, in a big way that he has done with Walcott. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good that Walcott's doing there. Um, I'll, I'll kind of gloss over this point from the point where he lost the ball and, and, and then in attack, which gave Grace an, another chance, um, which was a, a fairly uh, bad miss for Brighton. But I think if we're going to pick on a player for missing, um, Nathan Redmond wins this one. I mean, I was really pleased oh, to see him coming onto the pitch. Um, good to have him back. He, he does score goals sometimes, but he also misses chances. And Danny Ings created a wonderful uh, chance for Nathan Redmond and how he didn't get this one on target. Um, I don't know. Maybe it came too soon in coming back from injury because it was only a couple of minutes after he was back on the pitch. But it's kind of Nathan Redmond all over, isn't it? I, I feel sorry for Nathan Redmond because it must be strange to have all of the skill, you know, all the pace everything in your locker except the ability um, to consistently put the ball in the back of the net. And he almost seems to do worse with easier chances. I know, I know it wasn't an easy chance. It was coming down, you know, relatively close to the goal on the volley. He's only been on the pitch a few minutes. But um, it kind of just kind of summed up almost like everything about Nathan Redmond, didn't it? Being in the right place, right time, just not being able to to finish it. I mean, yeah. of, of of all the Southampton players who've registered a shot on target this season, Nathan Redmond has the lowest accuracy rate, um, <laughs> which you know is is kind of not unexpected, I suppose. And he's his first season with us. I think he scored six or seven, um, but since then, it's he's yeah he he does. He frustrates. Like he, he clearly has a lot of talent. Um, I think the application sometimes is in fits and starts. Uh, he seems like quite a confidence player, and he seems like a player who backs himself to do things some of the time. And sometimes they come off and they're brilliant. Um, but when he's not backing himself or when those things are going wrong, I think he he can look a lot worse than he actually is all round. He never. He he kind of he went to America, didn't he? And kind of got. Do, do you remember that period, a couple of seasons back, where he kind of he seemed to go to America when everyone else was on holiday in Dubai. He went yeah. to America, sorted his head out, sorted his fitness out, came back a world beater. You know, seemingly a world beater. I think then you know even got an England cap, and then just kind of since then he's he scored some worldies. You know, the guy against Crystal Palace, um, so last season. You know, but he just. He kind of flatters to deceive, doesn't he? And you have to say, if if, if Ings is back, and it would appear Ings is, is clearly back, um, Walcott's going to play on the left, and Redmond's going to probably sit on the bench for a little while. It's, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question uh, about who's going to fill that role, whether it's going to be Redmond or, or Walcott. Um, I, I don't know if, if either of you spotted this, but Southampton uh, Twitter team put out a little quiz today. Um, which was kind of which uh, players have you know the top scorers since Ralph has been in charge, and I was quite surprised actually to see that Nathan Redmond has had fourteen goals in the two years that Ralph has, has been in charge, which seems like quite a lot. And I can't remember him scoring fourteen goals in the last two years, but I must be missing a purple patch from from my memory. Um, obviously, Danny Ings and James Will Prowse the ones ahead of him. Danny Ings was thirty four since Ralph started, and James Will Prowse was sixteen, which is very impressive considering where he was. Pre-Ralph, I think. Yeah, no, fourteen. Yeah, that's right. He got he got three in 
two games in the FA Cup, which may have bulked him up a little bit. And he is got one against, in. Is that against Derby? I couldn't tell you to be honest. Um, yeah. But I mean, his his kind of it's interesting. If you go right back to when he was twenty and and playing for Norwich, he was an assists guy. You know, he was playing on the wing and banging crosses in. Um, and and it it does kind of feel like, in a way that's perhaps not dissimilar to Walcott, that that there are certain attributes in terms of, uh, you know, his ability to run with the ball, his pace, his desire to shoot, that have him sort of caught halfway between being a wide player and being a forward. And so he gets himself into quite aggressive positions, which under Ralph's system is is what, you know, the wide attacking players are supposed to do. But in some ways he's he's better suited to being a provider than somebody who is regularly taking shots. Yeah, I, I don't know if we will ever sort of figure... It, he almost it feels like he has that potential to be the guy who can who can do both. But I can I can exactly see what you're talking about there, Alex, in the way that he's a cis guy trying to be converted into one of Ralph's um, kind of strangely named num- number tens, where the wide player has to come in. I think Walcott has always wanted to do that. I think Thierry Henry was one of his heroes, and it's sort of that that image that you want the left winger to be doing, and and in Ralph's system you're kind of encouraged to do that, isn't it? To, to kind of turn inside and then actually create those sort of dangerous chances. Well, let, let's move on from Redmond's miss because I think we've got um, a world-class uh, long ball from Vestergaard from deep um, up to Kyle Walker-Peters who charges into the box and gets fouled right from the edge of the box all the way through into the box as VAR ruled. Um this seemed to be the particular main talking point for Sky on, on the coverage. I'm not sure if that was because generally the game was a little bit poor and devoid of chances, but they really, really focused on this. And I thought probably the biggest, the, the most interesting thing was if this was one of those sort of clear-cut ones where the way they explain the rule works is that if the foul continues into the box, then it is a penalty. Then it was, it was pretty clearly a penalty, in which case, why did it take so long? And why does everyone have to dwell on it all the time? I mean, <laughs> I, my my initial, I said straight away, I thought it was a penalty. I, I straight away, I thought it was a penalty, and I because I, I thought that I think people were focusing when they on the initial challenge and saying, "Well, that's the foul," and it wasn't the foul. You know, he he has got away from Solly March, and and I think he was through, and I. I was in two minds about, you know, I still am very much in two minds about VAR because you're like, well, you're right. If it takes that long, then it's not clear and obvious. But at the same time, should you then, you know, put some sort of countdown artificial, like, timeline, like, boom, you know, if they haven't made a Stockley Parker decision within 60 seconds, they can't make a decision. It does seem to be strange, but I, you know, I thought it was a pen straight away. I, I don't know. I, I just I thought it was, and I thought it was interesting um, on on um, BBC Radio Silent. They they called it as a pen immediately. Yeah, I mean that that was my initial thought. Then I saw the replay, and I was like, oh, is it? Is it not? Um, but um, in some ways, I was kind of a little bit nervous about us getting a penalty instead of the free kick because 
Saints aren't particularly great with penalties, but James Ward-Prowse is scintillating with the free kicks at the moment. And whether he's going to do a cross or a shot from there, I almost fancied that more more than the penalty. But Ings puts it away. I thought it was a good penalty. Really good that he's back in the goals already. Kudos for my brother who decided to pick a semi-injured Ings for his fantasy team and get him back in there. Um, so, you know, serious uh, uh, faith in that. Um, one of the things which I really enjoyed about both Vestergaard's goal and Ings's goal was with the fans back in the stadium, and there only been 2,000, um, I thought I'd, I'd go to kind of a few non-league games here and there. It had a bit of a non-league sort of vibe with the, the sort of chants and the noise that was being created, which I really enjoyed. And also had that sort of non-league vibe of a distinct lack of away fans. So when the away team scores, there's just this like awful stony silence, which is then followed up with a few kind of swear words and um, you know inexplicable sort of comments from the, the home fans after that. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and it was good to ha- have the fans fans back and, and hear them silenced by both Vestergaard um, and Ings. I mean, what what do you think about the fans being back? I mean, Alex, did you notice anything different with the 2000 fans in the stadium or not? Uh, I, I thought it was nice. Um, I mean, obviously it's nice to have fans back uh, and it's important for clubs' finances. But so I, I go and watch Winchester City quite regularly. Um, and you're right, it, it had a non-league vibe. So because you didn't have the artificial crowd noise, which I, I just don't like, you heard enough of the crowd to know they were there. And also you could hear kind of distinct voices or distinct comments, which again is very non-league, but it wasn't drowning out the sound of the players. Um, so you had that really good balance of being able to sometimes hear players communicating, um, but also that bit of atmosphere and humour, I suppose, which is important in football. Um, so yeah, it was it, it was really nice to to kind of have that mix. And when it goes back to just... I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 people droning. I'm, I'm less keen on that. Yeah, I wondered if, I, I thought the atmosphere sounded particularly good and I wondered if it, it's almost like, is it better to have 2,000 hardcore fans that are going nuts than 30,000 of which maybe 4,000 are only hardcore fans going nuts? And I thought they, I thought they made a lot of noise, Brian fans. I was impressed. Yeah, I was quite impressed. Um, I heard a uh, Tottenham fan sort of describing it. it um, so he was at the North London derby and one of only 2,000 fans in a massive Tottenham Hotspur stadium. And so it almost had the atmosphere of being the away fans, you know, that sort of semi-tribal feeling of a small group of you there for one reason and, be, you know, really enthusiastically supporting it. And um, Alex, to go back on your point on the humour, that is something that they just cannot get in uh, with the the kind of crowd noise DJ um, sound guy. How do you, Im- you can't import football humour, which I think is a, a wonderful part of uh, especially British non-league football and smaller crowds. Um, right. So, I mean, we let's, let's move on from the Saints Brighton game. I mean, we held on for a sort of fairly underwhelming, but important three points. Um, I want to talk about how good Vestergaard is. I'm not even going to ask you who your man of the match is because it was so obvious. Um, <laughs> Vestergaard this season has been a revelation for me. I think Vestergaard has kicked on in a way that I didn't really realise was possible. And um, I remember seeing last season, like Leicester, 
were rumoured to be wanting to get Vestergaard for over £20 million and just thinking, that is just madness. I mean, we, the Vestergaard experiment hasn't worked, but this season it's working really, really well. Um, wh- wh- where's this come from? It's really surprised me. I I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of Ralph uh, as a manager um, and, and as a tactician, but I, I think clearly there's also something going on with with him and coaching and the coaching staff because players are improving. I mean, even, say, Oriol Romeo, for example, who has often been a good player, just seems to have that increased level of awareness now mopping up, you know, doing doing the, the bits and pieces. It, the, the team really seemed to have gelled into the system and, and some of that will be drilling the system but some of that will be working on individual bits and pieces which comes from the coaching team and I think Vestergaard he I I suppose technically one is surprised at his ability to pass um, because he's he's big and he's physical and he's able to compete in the air so you know there's a kind of a lightness of touch there with his passing which I think is really impressive but also the way that he steps out of the defensive line, um, you know, sometimes with the, the the system that we use, it's quite easy for Southampton to become overwhelmed in central midfield um, because generally you've only got two players in there. Even if it's a narrow 4-4-2, it's still a 4-4-2. Um, and Vestergaard increasingly is the guy who steps out sensibly, doesn't do it all the time, but, but just is able to bring the ball forwards and then straight away you're asking the opposition a, a question in terms of w- how their double pivot is set up you know are they going to go two for two are they going to bring one towards Vestergaard and it just opens up the opportunities for Southampton to progress the ball centrally and I think he's been encouraged to do that quite clearly um, and and perhaps it's one of those instances where when a player has more responsibility given to them and is encouraged to do things that are that are in their game but that we didn't see before, it lifts everything about their performance because they feel like they're much more... You know, he didn't start the season. Jack Stevens started the season, didn't he? So, you know, it's kind of come in and, and he's he's embraced this role and he's taken it on as he gets better and as he does what he's supposed to do well, it, it lifts his performance further. He he also doesn't seem to get um, caught out as much as he did in his appearances last season. I feel like a, on a few occasions last season, I was sort of looking at him despairingly thinking, you're, you're kind of so slow and out of position or you haven't won that header. And I, I'm trying to work out, what, I mean, has he limited that from his game? Because I don't think he's necessarily become any quicker, which means I think he must have become more intelligent or more savvy in the way that he's positioning himself, that he's not having to draw on talents that he doesn't necessarily have in buckets and he's able to focus on the things that he is that he is doing well. Yeah, it's it, it's a really difficult thing to assess why that's happened. I mean, it, it certainly has. Um, it could be that, that McCarthy is increasing in confidence. I think McCarthy's having a really good season so far. Um, you know, one or two little errors aside, but but I think that that lifts the whole of the back line. Um, 
and it does allow you know the more the goalkeeper communicates and the more the backline is kind of fixed and solid and and remains the same which it has done for quite a few games now those players are used to playing with one another um you know i think when stevens came in for bertrand um i can't remember which game it was but stevens has to play at left back newcastle game that's right you know that that's that was an enforced change, but apart from that, you know he's he's basically kept the same backline where possible now, and and as that unit gets more cohesive and the communication improves, positioning automatically gets better because there's a greater awareness of where your teammates are. Your teammates are, are less churlish about shouting at you to get into your position and and hold it and that kind of and that, that they seem to be growing as a unit together which i think is possibly an explanation for that because he won't have got faster i mean that that doesn't that doesn't happen at 28 really but do you i mean i i wonder as well if if just the fact it i wonder if it's a, we talk about strikers and confidence a lot um but we maybe we don't really talk about defenders and, and confidence and maybe Vestergaard just you know now he's getting a long settled run in the team um in a team that's playing well with players in front of him that he knows will happily do the, the disciplined work if it does go wrong, you know, in Ward Prowse and Romeo to help him out and cover him. And he just seems to be, you know, a man transformer. Like everything he does, he seems to get right. And and I wonder as well, like, you know, last season we, we kind of had the prototype of this team with Stevens, where Stevens was encouraged to run forward and and pass the ball and try and create attacks. But I think that the difference for me seems to be as Saints have changed and Saints have become less reliant on long balls over the top or long balls into the centre-backs to try and make them make mistakes so we can win the ball back, which was kind of what, you know, Jack Stevens had a good run of assists last season for, for Danny Inks and these sort of long balls from the back. Vestergaard's different. And maybe, he's, you know, he seems to be much more comfortable with the ball on the ground, fizzing balls in at yeah. quite a rate of knots into midfielders and forwards. And I, and I wonder if, as Saints have evolved their game away from the long ball, um, Vestergaard is is the player that can you know like a wrecking ball just kind of stroll through the midfield and, and cause a bit of chaos to be honest. Yeah, I I think that's right, and I I think we saw that a number of times against Brighton. Um, you know, his ability to bring the ball forwards is certainly a real asset. I think it's also worth saying that he's got Ryan Bertrand outside him consistently now, and and for my money, Bertrand is the the smartest player in the team. Um, in terms of tactical understanding, in terms of positioning, Bertrand is often, you know, he's he's pointing to where people should be going. He's he's very very aware of where everybody is on the pitch, and he's kind of he's the I don't want to he's not the captain obviously he's not the captain, but he's the kind of brains trust of that team to a degree I think, and and obviously super experienced as well. And I, I wonder whether having that you know with Romeo in front. And, and Bertrand outside, Vestergaard's kind of, he's nicely cushioned by the players around him so that when he does carry the ball forwards, it's it's with the awareness of everybody else and he's well positioned to be able to do that with, with sufficient cover and with the players that know what he's going to be doing and, and can make sure that they're not then caught out of position if he loses the ball, for example, and, and that will give him confidence in what he's doing as well. I, I've also been um, wondering if... Um... Romeo has helped that in quite a big way. So I think Romeo is doing a really fantastic job. And um, in that, that kind of position in midfield, and 
it's it's kind of it feels a little bit crazy because I think Hoiberg is exactly what Tottenham needed and what they wanted, and he's having a really great season with Tottenham. But Saints have also been improved by Romeo and Ward Prowse being in midfield, and I, I guess kind of maybe where Vestergaard uh, differs from Jack Stevens. I think Jack Stevens had the ability to roam forward, take on players, and then play the long ball. Vestergaard also seems to be able to play that quick shorter pass into Romeo and spot the opportunities where moving through the centre of midfield quickly is the right option or like you did with uh, Carl Walker-Peters winning the penalty whether it's the, it's the long ball over the top and that element seems to he, he seems to have both and seems to be able to do both of them quite calmly and you're probably right I mean having Bertrand and Romeo there from that point of view is good but also Romeo from an attacking point of view which is something I just never thought I'd hear myself saying. Well, he's a good wall pass option, isn't he, Romeo? Because he's so physically strong. And and he's not the kind of player who's going to take it and, and turn and stride off up the pitch because, <laughs> because he just isn't. Um, but in terms of his ability to take the ball under pressure uh, and then play it back and just give the centre-back that little bit of extra time to, to move slightly into position or open up a passing angle, I think he's really, really key to that. Um, so, yeah, no, I'd say that's correct. Cool. Right. Let's move on. So Saints are now up to fifth in the in the Premier League table, um, breaking the top six reunion party, which they were having on Sunday, um, the top six, big six. Um, so we're up to fifth. Um, we've also gone past the two year anniversary of Ralph uh, being our manager. And I mean, it, it feels very, very different, this Saints team from the one that Ralph took over two years ago, where it just looked like Mark Hughes was destined to get us relegated. Um, but we're also, the first year under Ralph wasn't always plain sailing. And this time last year, I think we were in the relegation zone again, which I don't think any of us necessarily expected. Obviously, we know that he managed to turn it around in the end. But at this sort of two-year anniversary of Ralph, um, Alex, I know that you you love the, the tactics side of things. So... Have, have the two years of Ralph been everything you've expected and more? Or, or what's your kind of moment of reflection here? Um, so my first is, is slightly smug because I'm on record about two months before we appointed him saying that he was the guy we should go and get. Um, and and that was partly because we, Tifo used to do some work with the Bundesliga. So I, I always had a, an interest in German football and had had seen this guy playing you know, a really exciting pressing style of football. I, I liked the way Leipzig set up and he was at that point out of work and it just seemed, it seemed like such a good fit for somebody to to come in and begin to institute a style of play that was quite different to a lot of what was happening in the Premier League, but was obviously, you know, had the potential to be successful because that kind of pressing style was, was working well for people like Jurgen Klopp. Um, I think it took him time to bed in. You know, the squad that he inherited had quite a lot of missteps in it. Um, and he clearly has been working towards uh, creating a squad that's more in the image of, of what he wants. Um, and I think you're right. It's interesting that, that players like Walcott are part of that um, because you can't say that that's... Or rather, if that were a transfer that were foisted on him by the ownership... 
he seems to have embraced it wholeheartedly. So, you know, it, it seems unlikely that it was that. Um, but people like Carl Walker-Peters, you know, having done so well on loan, then becoming a, a full member of the, the team. Diallo, I think, is a really promising player. He was always going to be a manager that needed time. You know, players, uh, managers like like Ralph and like Jurgen Klopp can't come in and change the, the, the tone and the style of a team overnight because pressing, and particularly this kind of pressing, is too complicated for that. Um, and I think the the ownership of the club deserve great credit for you know, unreservedly backing him, even in those periods where it looked like things were not going well, um, because that will have, you know, given him such a degree of confidence in his ability to shape the squad. And he will have known, because he's this kind of person, he will have known where he was going to be in a year or two years' time with, you know, if he could build a squad in the right sort of way, the style of football he wanted to play. Uh, and the board just went, yeah, get on with it. And I think we're seeing the benefits of that now. And and do you think the board have given him everything that, that he's wanted? Because it's interesting that he seems to have done more with improving the players in and around the squad that, that were here when, when he arrived um, than him kind of going out and cherry-picking players from the, the Bundesliga, which I sort of expected to happen when, when he came in. And we've seen with, he's, he's kind of quite slow to bleed a player into the squad. But yet he also seems to be very happy with the sort of higher level of control that I think he has over most other managers in the Premier League. But is, is there more that we can do to get more out of Ralph? I, I mean, I think every manager wants more money to spend, don't they? Um, but but I do think that, you know, Salasu, for example, he's not, He's not a player a huge amount about, um, but I know people who follow La Liga regularly were very, very hot on him when he was there. Um, Diallo, you know, fits the profile, young, energetic, um, fits into that, you know, withdrawn central midfield role really nicely. So if if you gave him more money, he would probably find slightly better players of that type. Um, but like I said, you know, before in terms of trying to recruit players for Southampton, it is tricky because you're you're recruiting players for such a set system that requires very specific things, not just in terms of footballing technique, but also in terms of work ethic, willingness, the ability to learn. That's why I think players like Bertrand are so important because he just has this breadth of ta- tactical knowledge and experience that means he understands what's being asked of him but he can also guide other players in that um so i i you know i don't think if you gave ralph hassenhutl a million pounds a, a million pounds a hundred million pounds he would he would go out and splurge it all on big name players because i i just don't see that they would fit the ethos and fit the style that well um you know asides from that i i mean you're right he's, he's developed players who are already there um and that's clearly a talent that he has. And, and, you know, some of those younger players coming through, I think, are interesting. You know, people like Smallbone, um, that he seems to have a lot of confidence in. Even if he's not playing that much, he's saying all of the right things. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's very much an upward trajectory. Um, I, I, for me, the question is how long we can hold on to him for. I mean, that's... that's... Don't say that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but you've got to be realistic, haven't you? Yeah, of course, yeah. I, I, I think, to your point about improving players, if you look at... I mean, Romeo last night was immense. And the amount of times when, um, you know, Brighton were pressing really hard and Romeo just managed to just get out of trouble, didn't he? And, and just get the ball away to one of the centre-backs who can then ping it onto a full-back. And you, you think, I mean, how much would it... I mean, to your point about £100 million, how much would it cost to buy a Romeo? You know, how much would it cost to buy a James Wall Prowse? Probably cost you thirty, forty million pounds to buy a player of James Wall Prowse's caliber. Um, and they were kind of players that not were languishing before Ralph, but weren't really doing much. And I, I think that's the most impressive thing about him is, is, is his willingness to to work with what he's got um, and, and to improve rather than just to kind of try and buy players. Yeah, I mean, some of those players are doing stuff that I didn't really necessarily know that they were capable of, which is um, just really, really great to see um, from Ralph. Um, so I, I think at two years, you know, we're, we're fifth in the league. What is a realistic target for us? I mean, we had Carl Anker on last week and he was far too sensible. I think he predicted us for ninth. Alex, I want you to get more excited than ninth. Like, where, where, where are we going to end up with Ralph? And, you know, where do you think we'll end up this season? But I suppose, more importantly, if we are able to continue to have Ralph at the helm, what's the sort of the ceiling of his potential achievement as a Southampton manager? Um, and, you know, sort of following the, the similar sort of trajectory. So we're not imagining that we have got a new owner that is going to furnish him with 100 million. We're sort of thinking similar sort of uh, transfer policy. It's a very, very hard question to answer. Um, I mean, look, so in terms of, in terms of say underlying numbers, Southampton's position in the table is perhaps slightly flattering. If you look at XG, albeit on a smallish sample size, but then I would argue that Southampton are a really weird case when it comes to that sort of, um, metric because we're scoring goals from headers we're scoring goals from free kicks but like the reason we're outperforming our xg is because of the kind of goals that we're actively setting out to score um we're also really good you know in in terms of trying to to get ahead early um and and game state alters those things so the reason i say all of that is because one of the easy ways to to look at a where a team's going to finish up ultimately is is that sort of metric but i think southampton is such an odd case that it's quite hard to be able to infer anything from that um and it's it's a really I, interesting I the point Alex, of, because the xg tables we used to break them the wrong way around by creating loads of chances and yeah. not scoring the goals yeah, we we were consistently amazing at chance creation and consistently appalling at chance conversion and, and now we flip that on its head. So, so what, how's that happened? Um, well, I think I think it's partly playing to to the strengths of you know if, if you've got James Ward Prowse, who's the best set piece taker in the league, and you've got a six foot six centre half who's really really good at, at scoring headers. You know, obviously that's something you're going to look to play for. I think also because Southampton have. Uh, they have this thing of of attacking the box in kind of two waves and that quite often creates opportunities where you know Ings is firing through two or three players um because he's on the sort of the second go of that 
so I, I think if you looked at our goals, you would see, you would see a lot of quite low XG opportunities. Um, but as a result of a deliberate tactic rather than trying to hoon it in from 30 yards. Um, so I don't, you know, there are, there are teams that do, or I mean, Lucien Favre, for example, of Borussia Dortmund is famed for kind of breaking XG models because his teams always exceed XG by quite a significant portion. Um, it may be that because of the way Southampton play, there is a certain kind of uh, of magic happening there. And, and XG, you know, it's great at the end of the season, you can look at certain sorts of things and there is a correlation, but, but it may still be too early to look at that stuff now with any real degree of confidence. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the only reason I bring it up is, is to try and have a stab at answering where they end up. I I still predicted at the beginning of the season something like 10th or 11th, I can't remember. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if we settled to there, but I also think that the middle of the table is now as competitive as I can remember it being. Um, you know, you've, you've got teams like Everton in ninth with all of the qualities that they have. You've got teams like Brighton who are massively underperforming in 16th it's just very very difficult to work out where anybody's going to fall out and then you add on top of that the fact that it is this weirdly uh, condensed season um, where bigger teams you know sometimes are playing three fixtures in a week and there's all this stuff about you know the the Saturday 12 30 kickoffs and stuff so it's just it's incredibly it's even harder to predict the normal what's happening um and that you know that's the kind of situation in which a team like southampton could thrive um and and end up finishing in the top six i would expect us to regress a little bit um but but who knows i suppose that the regression may well come in the next if we say next six fixtures, so taking us up to the day after New Year's Day, we've got Sheffield United, who've been woeful this season. We've got Arsenal, who, although they've not been great, they are still Arsenal. We've also got Man City and Liverpool in that uh, run. And then West Ham, who are performing pretty well, the, the other fixture being Fulham. So, I mean, there's some interesting fixtures taking us into the New Year there. Um, I guess as a sort of gauge of where you think we are. I mean, and Tom and Alex, I both want you to answer this. What, what do you, when you're looking at those next six fixtures, what are you feeling? Do you think, uh, are we going to see six points, nine points, 12 points? What, what, what are we going to be looking at from those six fixtures? Well, I, I think it's interesting. I thought the game last night was really important. And I thought it was, re- it was, it was really important to put the Man United game to bed just quickly and just you know move on from that so looking at the games i mean sheffield united are a funny one because arguably they're probably this is a silly thing so they're probably not as bad a team as they are currently being um you know they, they conceded a lot of goals at the start of the season they've now they're now not conceding that many they're just you know losing lots of games one nil and saints obviously do have a, a long and storied tradition of uh giving teams who are no hopers uh, something or giving players who have never who don't score like Rio Brewster the opportunity to get their first goal. So who knows? But you, you would think. Look, I mean, they're not going to fear anyone first and foremost. Um, 
and I, I don't think it's unrealistic to think they'll go to Arsenal and get something. Um, you know, if we look there, what our next five games: Sheffield United, Arsenal, Man City, Fulham, West Ham. Uh, if you look at those five games, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see Saints take nine points. So we're we assuming that out of those six games with Liverpool being the sixth, that that's still nine points, then Tom. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. I mean, I, look, I think you know, can they can they get a result out of really misfiring Arsenal that are out of sorts? Absolutely. You know, can they beat Man City? They did it last year. You know, then you've got Fulham, West Ham. That's a really difficult game, but. Yeah, I don't see why they'll fear anyone, to be honest. And to be honest, they'll want to play these teams now when they're playing well. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd say the hardest games of that lot are West Ham and Liverpool, um, which might sound weird given that Manchester City and Arsenal are in it. But I, I mean, Arsenal are just bereft of shot opportunities at the moment. So I, I don't see much from them. Man City, you can get at them. Um, you know, they they are not the team that they were even last season. I know they've, you know, they're off the back of a very strong result, but there's there's something about the porousness of that central midfield that I can see us exploiting. Um, and I'm still not a massive fan of their centre-backs. Uh, so, you know, I think there's... Fulham, I think, are a bit tricky. Um, you know, I think um, Anguissa... Is, is not a dissimilar player to Basuma and, and can on his day, you know, again, the sort of guy who would probably fit very well at Southampton. Um, you know, good presser, good ball carrier. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that that's, you know, a, a, an easy three points. I From that lot, I'd say 10 maybe points, maybe 12 if we're really lucky. That's the sort of optimism I'm liking, the, the 12 point <laughs> sort of region. I mean, also, uh, do you think we're going to see the tonic that is lemonade against Fulham? I mean, I suppose that's a big question on everyone's lips at, he, at Southampton. He can't play, can he? Oh, is he on loan, is he? He's on loan, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, um, look, we, we've been talking for quite a long time now. Um, I've kind of lost track of time because I've been enjoying the conversation so much. Um, I had two kind of lovely emails. Um, uh, from our American listeners, but I'm afraid that we don't have time to read them on this one. Um, Tom and Alex, before we draw things to a close, is there anything that you've just bursting to get out there? Um, not especially. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not really a bursting kind of person, as anyone who regularly listens to Tifa will tell you. Is, is there um, anything that you want to kind of quietly and calmly present, Alex, before we uh, close the channels <laughs> of recordings? Um, just, just look at Tifo videos and listen to Tifo podcasts, um, and have a really good Christmas. Uh, I'll second nice. that, Tom. Yeah, nothing from me. Just, yeah, I don't. Uh, great win last night i'm really you know really excited about saints isn't it great to be really excited and really believe in it and, and have a have a manager that's bringing us all on a journey i think it's fantastic it's, it's, it's a good time. We've got a good thing going on at the moment. Um, listeners, uh, as you know, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Saints FC Podcast um, and do email in saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com. I promise to read some emails out um, next time uh, we're recording, so do get them in if, you want, if there's anything that you want me and Tom to discuss or any of our guests to discuss. Um, 
Alex, it's been an absolute joy to um, have you on the podcast and it's been a joy to sort of follow the, the works of TIFO over the last few years and um, it's also quite nice now that Southampton are tactically interesting enough that you seem to be covering them a little bit more in TIFO. I, it always gives me a little smile when I'm listening to your podcast and you manage to crowbar some Southampton stuff um, in there. So keep on doing that. Uh, it, it brings me much joy. And, and thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm going to say goodbye to the listeners. Tom and Alex, you're welcome to do the same. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> and uh, I've realised I'm just p- pressing the wrong phaser here for the, this crowd noise. So here it comes. <laughs> <laughs>